care and along with a postural puncture headache and inadequate analgesia, delays in the placement of an epidural was strongly associated with maternal dissatisfaction. So, yep. um, so yeah, I decided to look at, to find some benchmarks and, and do an audit to see whether our hospital was actually meeting those benchmarks. And if there were delays, what were the reasons for delays and what we can do about it? Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, this week, I have a guest on the show, um, Sneha, who's one of our, um, our registrars who was here recently. And uh, we've got a couple of things we're going to talk about, probably over two podcast episodes. Um, do you want to tell everyone what we're going to talk about, Sneha? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for having me on, Roger. Long-time listener, first-time speaker. <laughs> yep, you're, um, you're one of the biggest responders to my quizzes, which, <laughs> I, which I haven't done for about a year I think now. I'm your number one fan, yeah, yep. not going to lie. Um, so, yeah, today we'll be talking about a couple of um, uh, audits or surveys I did in, during my time at King Eddie's, one of them being an audit I did on labour epidural response times and a second one on um, the use of abbreviations and acronyms yep. in obstetrics. But before we get into that, uh, you have a second career apart from training in anaesthesia. What's your other career? Yeah, so I'm I'm a budding sort of um, quizzer. Um, I do like uh, I've, uh, I do appear on um, two two quiz shows in the past. So Millionaire Hot Seat and The Chase. Yep. In fact, today is exactly one day till oh one day since my episode of Millionaire Hot Seat aired on TV. So so there you go. Tomorrow's the anniversary. Is that right? Today, today, oh, today's yeah, the today's anniversary. So. Oh, right. And, so. Um, I, I, I apologise greatly, but I never watched it. That's uh, all right. I remember you giving us all the link or telling <laughs> us. So I can't remember. Did you win any money? No, in the end, uh, I did not win any money. <laughs> <laughs> Hence it. why I'm still um, working <laughs> as an And, an and presumably on yeah. the chase, you didn't win that many dollars. No, either. I got close, but uh, unfortunately, yeah, no cigar on that. Did, yeah. Do you have to pay for the flights to go to Melbourne? Or uh, where, it where depends. Was it so actually, um, yeah, both were filmed in Melbourne. Um, Channel 7, who... Um, produced the chase. Um, they didn't pay for any of my flights, so they were a bit cheap. But um, <laughs> Channel Nine did pay for my flights and which accommodation. One is, which one's Channel Nine? Which one's Channel? Channel 7? Nine was um, Millionaire Hot Seat, and Channel Seven was the okay. chase. So, so there's so. obviously better ratings for Millionaire Hot Seat. Yeah, got more, more maybe more maybe Eddie Maguire, <laughs> um, you know, funded it a bit more. Um, <clears throat> so um, I've I've forgotten. I had another question, but I, I can't remember what it was. <laughs> so. It'll probably come back to me later. That's right. So what was your um, – we're going to talk about um, your audits in a second, but what was the trickiest question you got asked in your um, TV career so far? You know, it's funny you asked that because it was actually an abbreviation question. All right, good. So I might ask you that. <laughs> yeah, it was um, – You can ask me. Yeah, Jesus. I'll see if you know. What um, is the – what does the abbreviation SAE stand for? Oh, jeez. Is it something to do with armaments or mines? Or something? No. no. I'll give you a hint. It's stamped, addressed. Enveloped. Enveloped, yeah. All oh, right. Well, guess what I said? I said email. <laughs> email. <laughs> Which is yeah. a very stupid the, answer. What's the S and the A? <laughs> St- <laughs> self-addressed. Oh, exactly. Self-addressed email. Self-addressed email, I thought, yeah. maybe. So, yeah. you know. Oh, well. Yeah, that, so is, that, was, that is a bit tricky. Yeah. Now, so. Maybe if you work in the post office, you'd know that one. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so um, yeah, do you want to tell us about the, um, the audit you did on labour epidural response times? You got um, 
a prize for your presentation at one of the national conferences recently, didn't you? So. Yeah, so um, I presented this audit at the ASA conference a couple of months ago and um, somehow won the prize, so that was um, quite lucky. But um, this audit I did was um, an audit on um, labour epidural response times. So what prompted me to do this audit was there seemed to be sort of a general perception amongst you know uh, midwives or the general public and patients that perhaps anesthetists took way too long in responding to epidural yep. requests. Um, and you'd read a lot of like news articles and, you know, online forums and social media sites being like, oh, you know, I waited so and so hours for my epidural. And they just got me thinking, oh, look, what is a actual sort of reasonable or acceptable and ethical time frame yep. for women um, who are laboring to wait for an epidural? Um, because obviously the safe and timely provision of labour analgesia is, you know, our bread and butter as obstetric anaesthetists um, and delays can often result in significant distress to the labouring woman. Yep. And there was a study done earlier this year that looked at factors that contributed to maternal dissatisfaction yep. with anaesthesia. And along with a postural puncture headache and inadequate analgesia, delays in the placement of an epidural was strongly associated with maternal dissatisfaction. So... Yep. Um, so yeah, I decided to look at to find some benchmarks and and do an audit to see whether our hospital was actually meeting those benchmarks and if there were delays, what were the reasons for delays and what we can do about it. Okay. And how did you go about it and what sort of things did you look at? Yeah, so um, our King Eddie's local guidelines um, stated that um, the time taken to attend to a labour epidural should not normally exceed 30 minutes yep. from time of first request to time of arrival and must be within one hour, except in exceptional circumstances. And these local guidelines were adapted from some UK guidelines. Um, yep. And furthermore, those, furthermore, those UK guidelines um, set the standard that 80% of women should be attended to within 30 minutes um, yep. of first requesting an epidural, and that 90% of women should be attended to within 60 minutes of requesting an epidural. So I then conducted a, uh, an audit to see whether or not we were meeting those standards. So uh, in the end of a four-week period, I um, prospectively audited 155 um, labor epidurals uh, and collected data on each of them in terms of the date, the shift, who did the epidural, what were the reasons for the delays, what stage of labor the woman was in, yep. um, and all the various times of arrival and time of first dose. And Okay, so you had to do not. all that manually and get the notes yourself. Yeah. That's quite a lot of work. Uh, well, I mean, whoever was doing the epidural, the form was um, in the epidural pack, so they filled part of okay, it out. so that was on yeah. a form. Yeah, so it was okay. on a form. So but still you had to yeah. go through a lot of paper. Yeah. Like 100, 145. <laughs> 155. Yeah, yeah, so that's a lot of work. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was done over a four-week period. And then the results, um, we actually did all right, I think, as a hospital. So... Uh, 75% of epidurals were attended to within 30 minutes of request, yep. um, which is just below the benchmark of 80%. Um, but we did supersede the um, benchmark of the 60-minute standard. So 94% of our epidurals were attended to within 60 minutes, which is yeah. above the 90% benchmark. And we found that really the the delays with the 30-minute target were mostly during out-of-hours shifts, so yeah. evenings and night shifts. Yep. Um and another thing of note was that of those delayed epidurals, um, 22% weren't actually contracting or... That's right. Or okay. they were having, a, you know, an elective or pre-induction epidural. So it could be argued that delays are more acceptable in, 
yeah, those so women. So they're not in pain. They're just yeah. They're they're way. They're probably um, about to have an ARM or have some Cinto put up. But, exactly. But um, aren't in a lot of distress. Yeah, yeah, but just want the epidural in early, which is totally fine. But yeah. then maybe they'll just be waiting a bit longer. Yeah, that's compared right. to the woman who's nine centimeters dilated next door. Yeah. Yeah, and that's right. So we're gonna we'll delve into some of the details and things because obviously some of these numbers are fairly arbitrary. You know, someone's just come up with a, a standard. Exactly. And yeah. Like, <laughs> you can't apply it on in. The, each uh, individual case sometimes is mm. a, there's different circumstances. Um, it, did you want to talk about that now? Where we talk about like the, you know, why, what, what the sort of things that can lead to delays and when the, uh, and what some of the solutions are. Yeah. So um, we found that the uh, most common reasons for delays in arrival of the anaesthetist was. Um, in fact, that they were either in theatre or that they were attending to another epidural. So that accounted for yep. over 50% of the delays in arrival. Um, some other causes of delays in arrival were that um, the second anaesthetist had to be called in um, yep. from home uh, or that the anaesthetist was in handover. So unfortunately, yep. sometimes they had to wait till the end of handover before yep. the epidural got inserted. Um, but we also found that there were actually not only delays in the arrival of the anaesthetist, but we found there were actually more delays after the anaesthetist arrived. Yeah, so these were, were these were things like, you know, the patient not having a drip in already um, or not having blood if they needed bloods done for whatever reason, um, not being ready in a hospital gown or still being in a shower or having an obstetric rev- uh, review or a VE exam. Yep. Um, and uh, or the equipment not being ready in the room or perhaps the midwives, you know, being on break or having their own handover. So there were lots of delays that actually, once yeah. the anaesthetist arrived, we wanted to get it done ASAP, but there were various reasons that it wasn't able yeah, to be put in. Yeah. So most of those all seem fairly reasonable, weren't they? It's, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's just the sometimes hospitals are busy and there's lots of things happening in the hospital. Exactly, yeah. Um, so yeah, so I think there were some um, take-home points or some uh, some solutions uh, that you um, those recommendations I think is what you've called. Yeah, so Do you some reco- go through those. Yeah, so some of the recommendations we um, uh, we sort of came up with based on this audit was that look, by far and away we're actually doing pretty well, but we can make it a bit more efficient and a bit more um, streamlined. And there are various ways we can do that. So I presented these findings at the midwifery education sessions and the anaesthetic department meetings just yep. to raise awareness. Um, and we also um, encourage the on-site anaesthetist, especially um, after hours, to call in the on-call anaesthetist early if there was an anticipated delay of greater than 30 minutes. Yep. Um, and it was a clinically urgent epidural. So it wasn't a, you know, elective epidural. Um, because sometimes there can be a bit of reluctance from you know, the registrars um, calling in the bosses, but um, that was, you know, encouraged it to actually call them in early if there is a more than 30-minute delay. There was also, um, we wanted to improve communication between the midwives and the anaesthetists, so yep. um, ensuring that the midwife would um, not only let the anaesthetist know about the epidural, but also let the labour and birth suite coordinator know so they could help, if there was multiple epidural requests, they yeah. could help coordinate and triage which were the more, more urgent ones and which were the less urgent ones. Um, and also when they were referring an epidural to give us a bit more information rather than just a room number. So yeah, that's right. giving us a patient name, um, the stage of labour they're in, so how many centimetres there are and um, if they had any comorbidities, like did they have a particularly high BMI and also a return extension number <laughs> would be very yeah. useful because um, if we were busy, then we had a number that we could call back immediately and yeah, get a bit right. more information. So. so 
So after hours, like the I guess the worst time in the in the hospital is when between sort of ten p.m. and eight a.m. There's only one anaesthetic on site registrar yeah. on site, and they're often doing something in theatre, mm. or they're attending to a sick patient in the HDU that sort of thing. Mm. Um, so being able to talk to the midwife and find out if there's anything they need to know, you know does the patient have preeclampsia and do they need a platelet count? Because nothing more frustrating than waiting half an hour and then someone turns up and saying, no, I can't do it, I need to know the platelets. Yeah, um, <laughs> That's pretty annoying for the, for the woman. Uh, what are some other things? So sometimes the high BMI as well, it's nice to know In advance. before you come down because often um, if they've got a really high BMI, you might want to bring down an um, ultrasound machine and a positioning device. Uh, and it saves you having to go, having to leave the room and go back up and get all that stuff. Agreed. Yeah, that would definitely be very useful information to know in advance. Yeah. The other thing we um, uh, did introduce was an epidural checklist, um, yep. and this was sort of a sort of a not a formal checklist per se that had to be done, but it was sort of stuck up in every room to give some to give midwives a, an idea about what sort of needed to be done before referring to an anaesthetist. And this would not only improve or avoid unnecessary delays, but to also improve patient safety um, um, uh, in a way. So I think sometimes we forget that epidurals are pretty... Uh, they're not a low-risk procedure they're necessarily. They're, 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 they're pretty bad. Uh, you know, they're yeah. not, not bad, but <laughs> they're pretty high-risk and co- complex. Um, and I remember somebody once told me that, you know, you're about to instrument an area that has never been breached with a four-inch needle. Yeah. Um, so we don't want to scare in, on, everyone. on a moving target using <laughs> so a blind technique. But we don't you know. want to scare everyone. So yeah. the, the incidence of like serious complications from epidurals, long term nerve damage, etc., is extremely low. Rare, but yeah. we don't want to be blase about what we're doing either. Yeah. You want to be careful. Yeah. Careful. So you want to make sure all the you know yeah. boxes are ticked before yeah, exactly. placing an epidural. So this was part of the reason that we implemented a checklist so that we could have have some sort of guide for the midwives and the anaesthetist to to make sure these things were done before the epidural was inserted as well. Yeah, that's good. All right. Any final comments uh, on that topic? No, I think, um, yeah, I suppose, you know, like we try our best as anaesthetists to, to attend to an epidural as soon as we can. Um, but, you know, sometimes we just uh, have other jobs that take priority yeah. and we try our best. So um, I think every hospital yeah. is different. Uh, probably the one, I think the, the thing, glaring thing that I, that I think is a bit of a problem in our hospital at the moment is that, is that because we have a lot of other responsibilities yeah. So it's difficult when you have to look after urgent cases in theatre, mm. plus run an HDU, plus attend to met calls and pain calls and things. Yeah. To to uh, triage which one is more, which things are more important, and try and you know, it's impossible to do three things at once if you're only one person. Is is trying to manage. That's probably the the, the the truth. But I yeah. think in general we do pretty well. We did pretty well, and just comparing us to some other hospitals, we actually there were some hospitals in the UK and in New yep. Zealand, very similar results to us. So. You know, seventy six percent and ninety six percent, as opposed to seventy four and ninety four. And yeah. Fiona Stanley also did a very similar audit, and they did slightly better than us. So they had ninety one percent attended to within thirty minutes. But bear in mind, they only have six labour and birth suite rooms, whereas we yeah. have sixteen. Yeah, so, I think overnight, and yeah. the, the and overnight there's three anaesthetists on site. Three yeah. yeah, although they're obviously bigger hospital, and yeah, got to attend to a lot more sick patients in theatre. Right, so that's good, and. Um, so uh, we're going to start talking about the abbreviation um, survey you did as well, mm. but we might um, we're going to try and split this up into two podcasts, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah we are. Mm-hmm. So should we get so some we'll, audience involvement? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So perhaps maybe you just tell us uh, what gave you the idea and um, how you came up with the idea on the survey, and then we're actually what we'll do is um, post the survey on on the page for this podcast, and people can have a look at it. 
and um, have a go. Have a go. Yeah. Before we then discuss it in the next podcast, which yeah. will be at an undisclosed time, depending <laughs> on how much office time I get in the next two weeks. <laughs> okay. Um, so I just remember my first week here as a um, obstetric anaesthetic registrar, um, sitting in the handover meeting uh, and looking up at the board in front of me and just wondering what the heck is going on and what half of the stuff meant on... Yeah. Um, on Wondering whether it was in English or not. Exactly. I, I just I had no idea what was being told and what was being talked about because there was just a lot of abbreviations and acronyms that I wasn't familiar with. Um, and I know I just felt a little bit reluctant and a bit embarrassed almost to, to ask for clarification because I felt, yep. oh, maybe they'll think I'm you know very ignorant or stupid for not knowing what these mean. Yep. So I felt a bit shy. And I mean, you gradually learn after a few weeks, but it is a bit of a steep learning curve. And it, um, so that sort of just prompted me to think, oh, look, maybe, you know, I, I should do a bit of a survey and, and find out, is this, is this, was this just me? Or is this, a, do, do, do people, does everyone here actually know what, what, what these, these um, abbreviations mean? Um, so I decided to, to create a, um, a questionnaire of around 50 abbreviations and acronyms that I came across during handover. So or was that in the 50? Note. There's nearly 50 in there. Oh, yeah, right. yeah. And that's just from the handover board? That's from the handover board and, and from the patient, some of the patient notes. Like if I came across something in the patient okay. notes, I'd be like, oh, what does that mean? Uh, I, I wrote that down as well. And, okay. and these are specifically sort of ONG? ONG specific acronyms yep. and abbreviations. Yeah, um, sounds good. So, and I just wanted to sort of assess or, um, yeah, find out how, um, knowledgeable people were yep. with these abbreviations. So who did you survey? So I surveyed a mix of people. I surveyed a lot of anaesthetists, ranging from very senior consultants, junior consultants, fellows, um, and anaesthetic registrars, some who have been here a few months and were at the end of their term, and some who were in their first week. So yep. quite a wide variety of people. And then I also um, surveyed the anaesthetic technicians yep. the and the anaesthetic um, – uh, sorry, the theatre nurses okay. as well. Did you yeah. try uh, – it would be interesting, I think, to even survey some of the ONG medical staff. Medical and staff midwives. themselves. <laughs> That's true. Because they're the ones who... Uh, who created uh, most of these, yeah. enter the electronic sort of... Yeah. Um, Type on that type on that board and label it anyway. Yeah, <laughs> be interesting to know how many how many of them don't know some of don't know some of the words that they type up. Yeah. All right, so that's good. Um, so we'll try and post that up on the um, on the on the li- the site that's linked to this podcast. Mm-hmm. If anyone's listening, and uh, if you're interested, go and have a look at it, uh, print it out, and try and have a go. See how many you you can get, um, and then uh, so we'll wind up the, this episode now, and then we'll come back in. Uh, a few days time and we'll talk about the results sounds good i'll see you then (laughs) see you soon (laughs) please go to the itunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it write a review this will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the itunes menu if you're also interested, please go to our website at www.obsandgynecritcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to our interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.